hello and welcome to episode number 424 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's packed show, a new runway opens in Ireland, KLM get grinchy and one Boeing 737 decides to lose some weight. In the military, the Italian armed forces fly their new helicopter and the A321LR puts on a grey outfit for a new mission. So joining me this week over in the PTUK Master Suite Studios this week, it's the guy who pushes all the right buttons and has beer on hand. It's Matt Smith. Hello, everyone. How are you? I'm good, Matt. How was your trip? You've, you've been away to um, sunny... North- Deerham. <laughs> I know. When you, I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds like a really strange thing to do. But as I think uh, anybody who's been following my social media will know, um, my uh, sorry, I was just adjusting the blind because I realised I hadn't shut it. Uh, there we go. That's better. The green screen works properly now. Hooray! Um, yes, it was. Uh, it was really nice. Had a little trip on the Mid Norfolk Railway. It was lovely. The afternoon cream tea, I tell you, was absolutely fabulous. It really was. Oh, that. I- tell you what matt one of the things i love because i went on there many years ago and the one thing i really love is that that smell that authentic smell from the coal burning steam ah yes now sadly we had a bit of bad news on that front they had to use a diesel engine because well as you probably know it's been a bit warm around here and the uh they ran it for a wedding because we were talking to one of the guards and they were saying that they they ran it for a wedding um, and the big problem that they had is they were literally having to have volunteers who were walking behind the train putting out fires as they went because of oh. uh, you know because it's a bit you know oh. it's a bit uh, it's a bit warm isn't it uh, or it has been of yeah. late so uh, so yeah so it should have uh, should have been fine but yes a, a lovely week off other than that really yeah yeah well I enjoyed myself uh, looking after your you did fine Absolutely. feline indeed it was it was, was lovely. She was no hassle at all, bless her. And, uh, yeah, you may notice this week we are a man down uh, our seat 1A. As you can see, if you're watching the YouTube stream, I am in seat 1A here on the in the business or the first suites here at BA. Um, because Nev's not with us this week, he's busy. He's had a very, very, very busy week this mm. week, Mr. Bounds has. Yes, yes. Uh, he's been filming a very, very special interview that we've got coming up soon on the, on the uh, show uh, with Captain nick which mm. will be uh soon well coming soon coming soon show. hopefully yes looking forward to and that. uh he's also been uh, meeting up with people and having yeah. meals out with captain al he's been uh, he's been yeah doing everything and uh, also uh, just a quick note obviously because today was the funeral of uh, the lovely ivo a friend of the show yes. and uh nev very kindly agreed to go as our representative uh and there's some lovely photographs and stuff that nev has very kindly sent us uh as i say he, he even made the program Graham Nev look <laughs> look at that it's uh, yeah so very very sad um, but from what Nev was saying it was a lovely service a and a very fitting service yeah. um, for a lovely man so yes uh, our, our thanks to Car- uh, to Nev for uh, for representing as it were and uh, yeah it's uh, it's uh, you know sort of uh, thoughts to everyone's families obviously as always yeah I spoke to Nev this afternoon actually whilst he was on his way up and um, he, you know he he was you know, he was, I'll say, looking forward to it. He was, you know, looking forward to getting to meet, yes, obviously, the family and, yeah. and the friends and everyone there and having a good old discussion about uh, Ivor. So it's, um, yeah. 
Very, very, you know, it's, it's a poignant uh, send-off, I think he had yeah, today. Yeah, a good send-off had by all. Good send-off, yeah. Um, so we have got, uh, well, someone who's been missing from the team for a number of weeks now. He's back with <laughs> us this week, and uh, he's got a good excuse, to be fair. He's got a very good excuse, but he's had more happen in the last couple of weeks than I think any of us have had happen in our entire lives. It gives me great pleasure to welcome back onto the show. It is Armando. Hey guys, uh, yeah, that is an understatement. It has been just slam packed for the last three weeks or so between training and flying. And as we're going to talk about here in a little bit after we introduce our outstanding guest host for the evening, uh, there's been there was a cross country journey in there that we'll talk about. So yeah, it's just been literally jumping from airplane to airplane to airplane, uh, fast, slow, in the middle trying to figure out where I am and how fast I'm supposed to be going. Carlos, you're going to love this. Sorry to interrupt Armando, but it's because we got a plane flying overhead us just now and Ben's literally just fired up the app to find out what it is. He's worse than you. I didn't think that was possible. He's hired. <laughs> He's hired. We'll keep him. Definitely. Absolutely. Imagine what, imagine what it was like for me last week when I was trying to drive a, a fully loaded lorry on the M25 <laughs> heading towards Heathrow. Right. Underneath the flight path at Heathrow. Right. And there's me driving on him. And I'm... I'm, I'm right. Okay. Need to keep <laughs> on the road. Right. It, Aviation is a is a terrible, it's a dangerous uh, thing. By the sound of it, you're really not selling it. <laughs> but uh, no, Armando, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a catch up with you in, in a bit. Obviously, we'll find out what okay. you're doing. Obviously, that your new cub is home now, which is uh, obviously good. And um, is is Megan gonna uh, gonna learn to uh, to fly the cub? That's the question. Absolutely, yeah. That was the intent of of buying this airplane, and like like you said, we'll we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But um, there's there is an ulterior motive there in that. We have an in-house instructor, not myself, because a husband teaching a wife how to fly is probably not going <laughs> to turn out so well. But we have a, a young lady. Her name's Shelby. She flies for one of the regionals here in Charlotte. And uh, so she is an airline pilot, but she actually owns her own tailwheel training company. And she uses our house as uh, as her crash pad when, when she's here. Because typical airline pilot, she lives in Phoenix, is based in Philadelphia, and uh, flies out of Charlotte. So typical, typical uh, <laughs> red, uh, Acme red, white, and blue operations right. there. <laughs> so, so they're going to start. They're going to start flying here uh, pretty soon. As soon as uh, I think Monday, she's getting an hour in the um, in the airplane with with another instructor to satisfy the insurance requirements. And uh, after that, her and Megan will start flying. Wow, you'll be you'll be out of the job soon, Armando. That's fine. I will just <laughs> watch from afar and. And and watch the beauty that that is, as we're going to talk about with with Ben. But watch the beauty that is somebody learn how to fly and and really get into it. And and when the concepts start start really you know solidifying in there, uh, it's pretty cool to watch that. So we have got a very special guest joining us on the show this week. We had him on many years ago. Do you remember how long ago it was? It was making me feel old. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long while ago. We had uh, our guest on before, and we've uh, we've managed to uh, to grab him and bring him back on uh, because he's had quite the eventful uh, last kind of year. So uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome back onto the show. It's Ben Rourke. Hello. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I think it must have been, what, four or five years ago? I think it was in uh, yeah. 2017, 2018. Oh, wow. Like that. So, yeah, it was at least four years ago. So... 
No, it's been it's been a few years since. Um, and, makes, and a fun journey by the sound of it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say it like that, it makes you realise how long it's all taken and the money yeah. as well. But yeah, <laughs> we're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that later, <laughs> yeah. Ben, because yeah. obviously we've we've got a lot to discuss with you because so much has changed uh, with you over the last few years, and uh, obviously you've reached quite a few big milestones in your mm. aviation and piloting career. So we're going to talk about that uh, later on the show. But well, welcome back anyway, Ben. It's great to have you back on with us. Uh, on the show but um stay tuned for our talk with ben later on in the show so we're going to say a big welcome to all our chat room family in the show this week uh, but first uh we've got a, a weekly roundup and uh armando you've got a few bits to uh to talk about on here yeah i'll tell you what be, uh, better than me talking about it matt uh why don't if you're ready go ahead yeah. and play that video yeah and uh, we'll talk about it afterwards okay east of Houston, Texas. This has been quite the adventure. It's uh, always fun buying an airplane. It's a bit like buying a house. But uh, over the last couple weeks, as we've been talking about over the show, I've been looking at this Piper Super Cruiser. We call it a Super Cup. Uh, it's a Super Cruiser. It's a three-place airplane. You can see there's a pilot up front. There's actually enough room for two grown adults in the back. You know, dealing with the seller and getting the pre-buy inspection, getting everything done in preparation for the cross-country trip home. Spent a nice day and afternoon there in uh, Houston, Texas, getting the airplane ready with the with the seller. Awesome dude. He uh, bent over backwards to make sure that this airplane was ready to go and safe. We were even doing some um, tinkering with his mechanic, his local A&P, uh, late into the hours last night. Trying to get the airplane ready to go. But uh, here we are, 3,500 feet, like I said. Uh, it's going to be about a 10-hour flight home from Texas back to Charlotte, North Carolina. And, uh, yeah, it's awesome. I'll show you guys some views along the way. And... Uh, we will uh, check in as the flight goes on. Yeah. All right, friends, hello. We, in just a few hours, have made it all the way to Atlanta. So I'm just outside of Peachtree City and uh, going through uh, the south side of Atlanta on our way back to Charlotte. But we managed to get the a couple hundred miles in today. I think I'm going to go as far as Greenville, uh, South Carolina, to uh, make sure that I'm not flying into the night. Since it's been a while since I've flown a uh, tailwheel into the night. Plane's been flying great. Amazing. There's a, I have a little squawk list. You know, I've, over the course of eight hours, you get to know an airplane pretty good. And I've got about seven items here that I think I want to get addressed fairly quickly. But otherwise, an uh, awesome little airplane. Uh, it's got a O235 Lycoming in it, same engine as a Cessna 150. And in this airplane, we're getting right at 100 miles per hour. Uh, I've had tailwinds pretty much the whole way, so I've been averaging about 115, 120 going this direction, which I can't complain about that at all. But overall, super happy with it. And uh, this trip is going a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be. 
waiting on. I've been fighting weather the whole way, but uh, ATC, as usual, is, is just awesome in the way that they help you. And I'll show you guys a little bit later, but uh, I've got what's called a uh, level aviation. Um, it is a, uh, a bomb broadcast outer module, BOM, and that gives me an attitude heading reference systems as well as indicated airspeed and a barometric altitude in my iPad. As opposed to like a Stratus or something like that. And then on the other side of the screen, I have uh, four flight as usual uh, with all my navigation. But this is a VFR only flight. I mean, I'm on though. That's just so. <laughs> I love the champagne when you got there. That's yeah. That's just so lovely. And that is now. You sent me that picture. The picture that's on the screen at the moment. Uh, uh, how would you describe um, it? It's uh, as I say. It's, well, it's got wings. Yeah, it's got it's, wings. Uh, white and red, and looks like a big Tylenol. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, no, and you're all sat in there, and it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful photograph of uh, people who have just got their lovely. I love that the champagne at the end there. A really lovely touch. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, that was the best part of the flight. It was, uh, so I did the first day was nine and a half hours with the command center, which is Carlos and his dad tracking me um, all the way from England. <laughs> These guys, uh, and we'll talk about the weather here in a second, but the, I flew kind of into sunset. I, I was comfortable, you know, the last time I flew a tail dragger at night, it was a DC-3, which is a pretty big difference <laughs> between this and, and that. And um so I decided to just stop for the night, even though I was only about 45 minutes from home and and really just finished out. But the best part of the flight was when I landed at our home airfield, um, which is just a 3,500-foot grass strip. Uh, perfect. There's a bunch of Cubs there. I think there's uh, eight Piper Cubs, uh, the Super Cruiser, a bunch of Cessna 140s, Cessna 145, uh, 195s. So it's all tail draggers, uh, really old-school community. Uh, Megan... Maddie and Shelby, our, our roomie, were all there with bottles of champagne waiting, and that was that was quite the welcome home, which which was much appreciated. After um, really, okay. I mean, I, I I was planning on not even staying at hotels. I this was such a almost a backcountry trip in that I had a hammock with me with a sleeping bag and a pillow, and uh, and was planning on just flying till I got tired, picking an airport, and just hanging up a hammock inside of a hangar somewhere sleeping there for the night and then and then carrying on the next morning but um so might as well talk about the weather uh ben was asking yeah it's it's the southeast in the summer it is just uh terrible terrible storms every day this particular day was so there's there's some horrible flooding going on right now in the southeast united states i mean 
some of some world record or some historical records are being broken. There's lots of people that are that are in danger down there right now. And I was on the leading edge of that storm. That some of these places were getting a foot of rain per day, uh, just in the days that after or that I, after I flew through there. So, um, so it was a little bit challenging. One thing that that was interesting was uh, flying at a thousand feet AGL. You know, sometimes eight hundred feet over the over the trees over unpopulated areas, you can see where the rain showers are. Um, so despite having ADSB in and having next rad weather and that kind of stuff, you can literally just look outside. You don't, you don't really need the automation because um, you're so low to the ground that you're pretty much under, as long as it's VFR or marginal VFR, you can stay underneath all of the cloud layers and just kind of look ahead and you can pick your way through. Uh, probably the most surprising part was how smooth it was on on the leading edge of these storms. It really wasn't bad at all, and and uh, it was smooth and and it it was kind of fun just to fly with the window open and the door open for nine hours. Help you know keep you awake and keep you alert and and uh, always thinking if, if the engine goes out, where am I going to put it down? But with a cub, you only need about five hundred feet of of a field or a road or anything like that. And you can really, I mean, the safety part of it was, was foremost in my mind and, and knowing, having the confidence that you can put down the airplane um, anywhere, you know, and, and Ben, I'm sure we'll talk to you later about this kind of, these kind of lessons that you're learning now, the, you're always playing the what if game, what if game, what if game. And, uh, and especially with a new airplane, you're definitely playing the what if game. Um, so as you're getting to know it. Oh yeah. Crazy, isn't it? Now, now while, while, despite all of that going on, uh, it's safe to say you, you bumped into an old friend while you were on your travels as well. Yeah. So that was, that was, I got the airplane home on Monday and right on Tuesday again, I had to turn around. I had a charter trip in the Pilatus. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about timing. Wow. So I had a, a charter trip. I took Shelby with me. My regular FO uh, called out sick. So I asked the company, I was like, hey, I, I've got an ATP rated pilot that lives with me. Can I just bring her along? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Um, so she sat right seat for me, did a, a great job probably you know more qualified than i am to be in that in that seat but we went down to atlanta met up with captain jeff he took us to the sweetwater brewing company which is a huge brewery uh, or actually a brewing company but the brewery was was pretty big and the food was great and we just you know hung out for a couple hours there while you know telling war stories and and talking about everything from airline careers to low and slow shelby also does aerobatics her dad owns a steerman she owns a decathlon herself um and we're actually trying to convince jeff at a post-retirement to come into the ga world and maybe even buy an airplane or start flying with us or something like that <laughs> wow well i don't i don't think you'll succeed somehow i've got a feeling that when when uh, jeff is done i think that that'll be it he won't be doing anything else we're, we're gonna have to teach him what what the uh what the blue knob does and what the red knob does and <laughs> all he knows is throttle full max and Without further ado, let's move on to this week's commercial news. So, if all the team's ready, yeah, let's ready? go. Let's go. Let's do it. Just turn on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts.
So the first commercial news story this week comes to us from RTE.ie News and uh, a new 320 million euro runway opens at Dublin Airport with Ryanair flight. So the first commercial flight to use the new northerly runway 10 left or 28 right at Dublin Airport is taken off. Forgive the pun. At Ryanair, flight FR1964 to Eindhoven pushed back from its stand just before midday this week and left the runway at around 12.10pm after it was cleared for takeoff by air traffic controller Night... God, you always get these names, don't you? I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. Night... It begins with N anyway, and her surname's Hennessy. Uh, the runway has been delivered on time, they said, within the 320 million euro budget paid for by the airport operator DAA's own revenues and borrowings. The project included the building and installation of over 300 square metres of new runway and taxiways and six kilometres of new internal airport roads, seven and a half kilometres of electrical cable and more than 2,000 new runway and taxiway lights. It will be capable of servicing larger long-haul aircraft, including the 747-8 and the Airbus A380. So it's good to have a new runway. I didn't realise they actually needed a new runway at Dublin, but oh, yeah. obviously they... Yeah, it's it's absolutely jam-packed when I was there. I was there last week for a few weeks, and uh, yeah... You know, you've always got five. Yeah. five you, you were saying you 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 saw this like coming out of the um, coming out going going out for first first run. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So every morning going back to the uh, training um, place where they where they do the sim stuff, you mm. go past the the runway there, and yeah, you can see they really do need that, especially in the summer. So yeah, it's good to see it open. Uh, next on Ryanair, new ru- new runway at Dub usage fee. <laughs> right? Yes, true. Yeah, the next, they've got to try and recover their recover well, their quite. costs somehow. Indeed, absolutely. Know. That's going to be the only way they know how to do it. I suspect. Uh, <laughs> well, it's safe to say Ryanair have got the aircraft to utilise this now. They've got so many new aircraft um, being delivered and stuff. So. Yeah, they have. Yeah, um, definitely. It's good news. But it's interesting that they've got they've uh, obviously they've they've tailored it for uh, being able to support the uh, Dash Eight and the A380 as well, which is always a good idea. Absolutely. And producer John mentioned that uh, the runway was envisioned back in the 60s and got planning permission 15 years ago. So I don't know, in the in the UK, is that, uh, well, I guess in Dublin, is that... Oh, no, uh, that's quite, t- no, that's quite. No, that's quite. Average time. Yeah, no, is that's, that good? that's quite quick, actually. Fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For for some any, any any form of infrastructure project, that's pretty quick. Uh, I don't know in in Dublin. I don't know whether it's a slightly different time scale. Perhaps. I mean, I think that's quite quick, personally. But uh. well, I guess in the history of the British House, fifteen years is nothing. No? Yes, quite absolutely. Well, it, it's probably going to take them that long to fit the central barriers along the A14. But anyway, oh, we go. On to the <laughs> oh wow! Next okay. uh, story. He went and, there. Uh, he went there. Yeah. Highways <laughs> agency. Highways, more like highway men. Okay. Yeah. And robbing people. Anyway, um, Matt taking the next story, and uh, it's it's bad news for uh, pilots of a certain Dutch airline. Okay, yes, indeed. Uh, So KLM no longer giving pilots free flights 
to work. So this is the NT, NLT Times uh, in the Netherlands and NOS.nl as well. KLM pilots who live abroad will no longer be able to fly to work at Schiphol Airport for free. Instead, they'll need to pay a fixed amount for commuting every month. NOS reports a bit based on the provisional collective labour agreement between KLM and trade union VNV. Just under 3% of KLM staff currently use the free flights to work uh, the flight the free flights to work scheme an independent state advisor previously criticized the re- regulation saying that it encourages tax avoidance klm pilots who live in spain or ireland for example pay relatively little income tax partly because they can travel to work at schiphol for free according to nos according to klm such compensation is quite common in aviation because it is a very international industry and airlines often recruit from abroad. The preliminary collective bargaining agreement uh, also gives pilots a 4% pay increase uh, as was previously agreed for ground staff. They'll be they'll receive the increase in 2% uh, in 2% increments. Now I don't know. I thought one of the... Um, Armando, you're probably the best one to, to answer this one uh, going forward. But, I mean, I, I thought that was one of the big perks was the sort of like the free travel and being able to sort of go from A to B, if you like, on, on um, you know, um, well, like jump seat privileges and things like that. I vehemently disagree with this policy. Yeah. Uh, this set, this sets a, a, in my opinion, right? We always caveat that. It's this is my opinion only. This is... Uh, you know, there's 8,700 pilots at KLM, and the number of people, so 3% of that, is is minuscule. And it is a perk. It is it is one of the benefits of, of being a, a cabin crew or flight crew is the ability to get out of your home airport because a lot of times you're commuting. The company asks you to be there, and I, and I, and I get that uh, KLM has a limited number of bases. So it's almost expected that you're going to live in base or near base, but it's also uh, over there in the EU, you could have people commuting in from anywhere and having to pay to commute to work to fly is uh, I I couldn't disagree with that policy more. It's such a minuscule and, and in all the times that I've ever commuted when I worked, you know, at the airline, I never thought, oh, I'm doing this to get away from paying my taxes. Right. I, you know, that, that, that thought never crossed my mind. I can't imagine it crosses anybody's mind. Uh, it, is, it is a benefit of being an employee of the company, being able to commute on the company and use the, com- the company aircraft for non-revenue flights. Um, but even then, you're going through so much, through so many hoops, just trying to find a seat. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, you know, because you understand and the company understands that revenue is the number one uh, purpose of the company. Yeah. So you're 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 literally already just begging to to get a seat and you're checking the loads. You're checking with your with your uh, ground crew amigos to see if there's even a seat available for you to get from A to B. Um, so having a flat fee commuting thing i don't know how much it is but i i couldn't disagree with this more so i'm going to play i'm going to play devil's advocate here because uh all those who don't uh have a flight or require a flight to get from you know who who live in the country if you like i suppose they're not 
they're the ones almost missing out on a perk if you see what I mean because I mean obviously commuting to work presumably that's a different arrangement to the jump seat privileges that I was referring to a moment ago obviously where you can you know jump on a flight and go to somewhere else um but is there an argument where if these people are able to commute to okay i know they've got to go to the airport but once they get to the airport the flight into schiphol as an example is not costing them anything further is that not unfair on those who are perhaps living at you know to say who are driving if you like to go to work from from a, a certain point i mean is that the argument here uh, I, I don't know i i disagree yeah yeah that that is a viewpoint um but even if it's not a commuting for work thing, it's it's it is a perk of, of working yeah. for an airline to be able to here in the United States is go through. Um, so you can't really use known crew member KCM, um, but you can go through TSA pre-check as a crew member. You can catch a non-rev flight on vacation yeah. and it's. You know, but it, that is a benefit and a recruiting tool for the companies. Well, uh, I think I, I think around the world that's that's quite common, isn't it? If you are either a pilot or cabin crew, that you you know you have the benefit of uh, of of those those perks, if you sort of mean to be able to. All right, you you may have to you might not necessarily get to to fly on the day that you wanted to, so you've got to make sure that your plans are are quite flexible. But yeah, the sort of like the crew ticket, if you like, is uh, is sort of quite common. But uh, yes, yeah, so I don't mm. know. Uh, oh, disagreement. This is exciting uh, <laughs> anyway uh, before we fall out armando uh, sticking you... sticking with you armando yeah for this next one and uh, a little uh, well, a bit of software for pilots oh boy i actually disagree with this story also oh. uh, so from ain online uh uk software developer signal has saved virgin atlantic airways some 1000 tons of fuel over a six-month period with the help of a proprietary app designed to, air quotes, nudge airline captains into flying more efficiently, according to that London-based startup. The Behavioral Economics and Data Science app adopted by Virgin Atlantic last December gives pilots individual feedback on their operational tendencies to encourage them to reduce fuel usage while complying with fuel management and flight safety standards. This three-year deal between Virgin Atlantic and Signal follows the success of an initial pilot study in which pilots reduced CO2 emissions by 24,000 tons over an eight-month period, resulting in $6.1 million in savings. Today, about 200 pilots, or approximately two-thirds of Virgin Atlantic captains, voluntarily participate in the program, according to the Signal Chief Commercial Officer, Gavin Laidlaw. Uh, using the app's pilot, pilots can view their performance data from each individual flight, and access their historical records. The app then calculates and illustrates the environmental benefits of a pilot's particular flying behaviors. So as the flight data gets loaded, uh, they can see how they're doing and they can see how much carbon they're saving in a relatable way, like you've saved 10,000 trees or that kind of thing, says the uh, the spokesperson. Um, so one of the key things they say here is that signal about signal is that that we don't tell you what to do captains value their independence and freedom of action and telling them what to do gets resented like i am thinking um so nudging them is a much more gentle and friendly way of doing them um okay let me tell you a little about about nudging <laughs> right i am not a fan 
I understand that companies need to make money. Uh, and in this case, you know, there's an environmental advantage to this. Um, I am not a fan of metrics driving operations. Um, as flight crew, we've already got enough on our minds to conduct a safe operation, a safe mission from takeoff to landing, really from gate to gate. And the more things that you have affecting your decision matrix, your 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 decision-making loop that's going on in your mind. So now we've got this other thing. And I can almost guarantee that at some point, this right here is going to turn into some kind of financial bonus scheme or something like that. And I despise bonuses. I despise on-time bonuses. I despise quick-turn bonuses, uh, fuel savings bonuses, anything that... Um, uh, that affects the decision make, making matrix of, of a flight crew. <clears throat> it just takes away from, I believe, from the safety and the and the and the successful execution of that aircraft. So now, now interestingly enough, sorry, uh, John Jester is saying we're getting a same type program next week. Uh, yeah, I would be interested. You know, John is much more qualified. I burn about uh, a thimble full of of, of fuel. Compared to John's 747, right? So, you know, and I think John and I, uh, we grew up together. We we probably think alike. Uh, we understand the the imperative to take care of the environment, but but these kinds of of metrics that continue to just be uh, to pressure the crews into, um, you know, into how to execute a flight. Uh, it's just too many things that are that are already but, going in. But also, it's an extra layer of of hassle or stress or whatever that you you don't need. Almost, I mean, you've got enough on your plate as it is. Yeah, that's what dispatch is for. Dispatch has you know an an economy, uh, an economy formula for that flight. They know that the most economical, the most uh, economical fuel burn for that flight will be, uh, you know, Mach point seven three or this specific type of uh, or, or setting for the fuel flow and they even give you a couple options they say you know hey if you go up a thousand feet you'll save this much fuel this much time if you go up two thousand feet based on winds that were calculated for you right before you took off or even during the flight uh, that's what dispatch is for so so make it a dispatch function saying uh, hey, we recommend you fly at 36 instead of 34. Right. We recommend this. We recommend this speed setting. But now you have to balance that with air traffic control, especially airports like Schiphol or Heathrow. You've got a slot time to make. So what happens in my view is is now these things turn into financial bonuses. Now, well, what happens to the people that are just trying to maintain on-time operations? And I've got this, I've got this slot time to meet. So now yeah. maybe I got to push it up a little bit. So does that mean that I get penalized as a pilot because I used higher than average fuel burn for that for that sector? Right. Yeah. Because I'm trying to meet a time slot, so my you know 380 passengers in the back don't get mad at me, or yeah. am I going to throttle back? And then I understand the environmental impact, mm. right? But um, but make it a dispatch function, not yeah. a not a pilot function. Mm. Uh, so 
What so, do you guys think? So, uh, so uh, there's some further information that John's very kindly put in the notes for us here, saying, uh, using data collected from the airplane's flight data recorder, the app addresses several operational behaviours, perhaps the most fuel-burn intensive involving landing and takeoff. For example, Laidlaw noted that pilots often use thrust reversers more often than necessary at airports with long runways. Uh, taxiing on one engine also saves a significant amount of fuel, but pilots simply don't always adhere to that practice. Uh, while in-flight savings might seem less significant due to the uh, due to the precision with the pilots typically uh, fly their planned routes. The simple act of using the most fuel-efficient flap settings on approach can make a big difference. He explained prior to takeoff, the amount of discretionary fuel a captain chooses to carry often varies uh, with his or her comfort level and risk tolerance. Of course, taking on less fuel results in less weight and therefore better fuel economy. The app will show, for example, how much unnecessary fuel after reserves for potential diversions a user took on board for each flight. It can then calculate how much, how many savings, how much savings he or she might have realised by loading less. I mean, this just seems, forgive me, this just seems really patronising. Let's not forget as well that the story, we haven't included it in this week's show, but remember, guys, we were talking about it in our group chat earlier this week. There was the story that broke, I think it was United. Was it United 737, Armando, that had taxied for so long? Oh, yeah. It, it, it just ran out of enough fuel to get to its destination, had to go back to the gate, and they cancelled the flight. Yeah, and I chuckled at that because that literally happens all the time. You get you get weather delays that, you know, we're already packing so many things where uh, – you're you're at minimum fuel <laughs> for the flight. So so this happened to us coming back from LA last week, where where we had a reroute out of LA, LA to Charlotte direct flight. Uh, there was weather over over Nevada somewhere, so we had to um, wait for for a, you know a little bit of a ATC delay. In that time, we didn't have enough fuel to complete the flight safely, so we had to taxi back to the gate. Um, <laughs> so this happens like all the time. Um, but I will, you know, I. Because I, I love a good discussion. Uh, John Jester is going to disagree with me on this one um, in that uh, the commercial aviation is all about metrics. It's it's metric driven. And in their operation, which it's, John works for a, a pretty large operation with large aircraft, um, they look at everything down to permits, to cross countries. All the dispatch info is on metrics from previous flights. And I get that. Like that, that is that is a success formula to any business, whether you're selling perfumes, soaps, uh, you know, running a cargo down the A14 or or flying an operation. I, I understand that that metrics drives all of this. Um my issue is is with the incentives and the uh you know, make it a sim. Make it a sim thing. Make make it a company policy. Hey, do this when available. Just tell everybody. Taxi on one engine. You know, if you're in a twin engine airplane, um, if you're, uh, you know, using flap settings. But again, I, I don't like people telling me what flap settings. I, <laughs> I, I need to. Use, I don't like. I don't like money telling me what what flap yeah. settings. But but I don't fly a you know a seven thirty seven. I don't fly a a seven eighty seven or or all that stuff. So. Indeed. Right. We, we my, better... my owners, we waste as much gas. We might as well just club, <laughs> club baby seals as we're going down the highway. Uh, take a, you know, uh, take a, a quart of oil and just, I just dump it down the, the sewer drain that says close to river. 
Indeed, right. I, I, we should we should move on before. Uh, I, I, is, is that is that while you is that while you drop the the cubes of blue ice yeah. from the aircraft? Yeah, I collect them and then I just throw at them. Yeah, from you know, throw them at people from the car. Very good. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, moving on to the next story. This one comes to us from our Herald Aviation Source News. <laughs> got, got blue water in my, my mind now. Uh, and uh, this is regarding Alaska Airlines Boeing 737-900 uh, that decided to uh, to lose some parts this week. Um, oh, as you do. <laughs> as you do. Well, it's obviously weight, weight saving. Isn't well, of course, forward? absolutely. They've yeah. obviously got the memo, haven't they? That's what it is. So in Alaska uh, Air, Boeing 737-900 Registration November 293 Alpha Kilo performing flight uh, AS558 from Seattle uh, to San Diego with 176 passengers and six crews climbing out of Seattle's runway 16 left when the crew felt an unusual vibration from the left-hand side of the aircraft. I bet they did. Uh, and stopped the climb at around 12,500 feet, then decided to return to Seattle. The crew declared an emergency and landed the aircraft on runway 16 left around 30 minutes after departure. Upon touchdown, the left-hand engine, the CFM-56 outboard cowl, partly uh, partially separated and the inboard cowl subsequently opened and separated as well the airline reported part of the engine part of the engine cowling blimey had detached during a flight uh, landing back at seattle and there's obviously with these kind of stories you get the normal uh, 400,000 social media videos uh, taken on twitter and matt just showed the video there and i have to admit if you were sitting in that seat there that's i might quite, be a bit nervous i've got to be that's honest quite, that's quite <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I assume they aborted their takeoff, did they? Uh, well, yeah, they returned for, for a safe landing, thank God. But oh, oh, so, so many, they, they completed the takeoff then? There are so many things that could have gone wrong there with those pieces flying off. Well, I mean, yeah. Armando, uh, I mean, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, you know what? I'm going to turn this one over to Ben. Ben, what would you do? Ben. If, if you, if you I, what, what airplane do you fly? You fly a, a Piper mostly? You're putting me on the spot now. Uh, the last aeroplane, yeah, is a Piper Arrow. Yeah, and the so what would you So that's well. got a little, it's got a cowling up, up front, right? A little flap that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. pops up if you don't latch to two latches, yeah, yeah. right? Happens what would you do? Well, it's actually a good point because it's something that we looked at um, before before we started the training. And there's a good video online, actually, of, I think it's open just on takeoff and he decides to land it back and they actually overrun the runway. Uh, you've probably seen it by the looks of it. Yep. Um, but it's one of those discussion points when you're going through the takeoff briefing, um, and, and this is in the later stages in the in the 737 sim, you say after V1, you'll only stop for these reasons. Oh, and, they're, and they're very um, you know, set in stone that it will only be engine failure, engine fire, right. uh, or anything that's going to affect the safety of flight. And you could argue that that's not going to affect the safety of flight to a degree that uh, a rejector takeoff would, or as we saw the overrun. So I, yeah, I, I suppose at that point you're quite, you're quite far down the, um, the runway, I guess, aren't you as well? So I yeah. suppose if you do abort at that point, there's no guarantee that you're going to remain on, um, tarmac for example and so you could end up i suppose bedding into the whatever's around it or I mean, goodness you know god forbid like crash barriers or a main road or or anything i guess so i suppose if as long as there there appears to have been no obvious i suppose there, there is the chances like i think carlos was alluding to there is like could perhaps it have been struck you know struck the wing yeah, or the you, side you've... of the aircraft or something like that 
yeah, you've got the elevators and stuff. It could have hit or the rudder. It could have hit. There's a lot. You know, I mean, a, a piece even could have, have flown back and hit the um, the actual fuselage itself or a window. I mean, I know the aircraft is not wasn't at any great height, obviously, so it wouldn't have um, been quite well. It's still bad anyway, but it wouldn't have been quite as bad as, as if it was at like thirty five thousand feet. But you know, it still could have done, done some damage. Luckily, I mean, as a video shoe, I think most of the pieces probably kind of went down rather than um or flew down rather than hit anything mm. but um yeah i think it's, it's this is a case of one of those things that you saw mundo when you go around do your walk around checks to make sure all the uh the latches on all the latched down cowl yeah. latchings are all pushed down properly so is it something as simple as that then basically that the, they it hadn't been shut properly i did see online um there's quite a few people saying you know this is why walk around checks are so important. Right. Okay. Obviously, they don't know the full details. So there no. might be something that suggested that, but you know, yeah, if you're doing the walk around, even I suppose you, you might yeah, not but, see it. So yeah. it's, it's hard to say. But um, yeah, nasty. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. could have been very, very nasty. Anyway, yeah, I've just I've just done a quick check. Yeah, and uh, on on the site, and there are at the moment there's no up, there's no updates. No that, updates. Um, story okay. on there. So yeah. Okay. Right, uh, we'll move so, on to the next. And yeah, next story. Matt, you've got... Uh, well, it's a new airport. Woohoo! I know, very... <laughs> London Manston, right, OK. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> London to get new airport as Manston is cleared for takeoff is the headline. Uh, bmmagazine.co.uk, uh, newcivilengineer.com and flyer.co.uk, those are the sources for this particular story. Uh, the UK's Department of Transport has given the green light for a £500 million development of a passenger and freight aviation hub that will join Heathrow, Gatwick, Stanston, Luton and City and Southend as well, being named as uh, a London airport. The decision uh, came despite opposition from the government's key advisor. The planning inspectorate had concluded that the project failed to demonstrate sufficient need additional to or different from the need which is met by the provision of existing airports. It highlighted issues ranging from environmental, carbon emissions and noise to operational impacts on the local community and road network. The airport will reopen primarily as a freighter airport with some passenger services and a capacity of at least at least 12,000 air cargo movements per year. Say surveys, detailed master planning and design work will start in the next few weeks. Construction will begin later next year with the airport operating its first cargo services in early 2025. Now, Uh, I've done a little bit of uh, investigating here and can I just share this with you, right? I'm going to share this screen. Don't panic. It's it's family uh friendly. Oh dear. Right, so so here's London. This is London, okay, and uh, up here is obviously where me and Matt live in the middle of nowhere. Or for everyone else, the whole this whole part of that is London. The whole, yeah, this, <laughs> here, this, this yeah. is where me and Matt are here. Yeah. Uh, now Manston Airport is here. That is Manston International Airport. That's London. That's Manston. No, I mean if you're you saying can, that it's you near, can see where I'm going yeah, with this, but it's, it's not near. But Norwich is further away than Manston, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> I think but that's. Can you can you, can you not see if if you were to say can we can we travel from here Norwich to Manston? That's not really just round the corner. No, true. That's, that's why you need a paper cub. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Okay. Very good. Otherwise, it's a four and a half hour drive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, indeed. So further information that John has given on this, by the way, is that it's a, for, it's a former Dam Busters test site, which I think Ooh. is quite cool. Uh, test flights and crew training for BA's A380s and a uh, Boeing 787s uh, took place there as well. It was previously named Kent International Airport from 1989. It closed on the 15th of May 2014. Operation Stack, Operation Brock, Lorry Overflow uh, was it was it was also used for during that word that we don't like to say on this show uh so yeah busy old time was it london, london calais oh dear this that's all getting a bit yeah no closing cl- closing the uh, book on that one i think we should move on before we end up into in in lots of hot can, water can we just can we just have yeah. an airport that's in london it's, i mean gatwick stansted luton heathrow yeah we can we yeah. can say they're london gatwick <laughs> I was like Gatwick and Luton. I'm not so sure personally, but yeah. Oh, I mean, the, 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 it's close to London in the fact that you know you've got the A1M that goes like between London and, and Luton. But uh, yeah, but we've had that conversation many a time before. Uh, shall we? But, move? Uh, but but just before we move on, it's good that it's going to be safe because far too many um, yeah. you know airports are getting swallowed up by housing and other stuff. True, so good indeed. News, do you think they'll still allow like GA flights and stuff into there, do you think? I would imagine so. Because yeah. I know you can't in some that. of the... I know you can't at Heathrow. I don't oh, no. Um, well, you wouldn't want to pay the fees anyway. I think... I mean, I think people say going down to Lid down there is probably the most depressing flight you'll ever do, so I don't <laughs> think it's... There's some nice strips around there, though. Um, yeah. Kent's yeah. actually quite famous for um, farm strip flying, so... Um, I think there's a few training places that are looking to be based back there. I think TG Aviation were there before, so oh, it might, that's good. might be might yeah. be home to a new uh, flying school again, which would be good. Yeah, yeah, I like the sound of that. Yeah, yeah. Armando, you've got the next story, and uh, it's all about giant airport screens. Okay, this one's from Minority Report. Oh no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's from uh, Washington. <laughs> WashingtonPost.com. Detroit Metro Airport. Thousands of passengers a week are finding their way to gate using a technology that looks something out of a futuristic sci-fi movie. Delta Airlines, always on the cutting edge of technology, introduced a parallel reality system that lets travelers access individual flight information on a shared overhead screen based on a scan of their boarding pass or their face. The twist is that 100 people can do this at a time all using the same digital screen. And I think Matt's a, got a picture that he's going to throw up there, but only seeing their own personal details. Unlike a regular TV or a video wall, uh, each pixel emits the same color of light in every direction. The board sends different colors of light in different directions. In Detroit, an overhead motion sensor that tracks objects, uh, moving objects anonymously, quote, follows passengers after they scan their boarding pass or their face to know where to direct flight information according to a spokesperson. Travelers need to opt in to Delta's facial recognition technology to use the face scan. So that was pretty cool, huh? That's a giant board and I would love to see this in person and see if it actually you know, like I bought one of those privacy screens for my iPad, and I'm kind of curious if that's the way it works. Like it just oh, I see, yeah, the light deflects you know? the light, yeah, yeah, towards you and where it is that you scan your boarding pass. I, I imagine there's probably a bunch of little kiosks, and and uh, it just directs the light towards you. I don't know, pretty cool. 
I, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of fun to get personalized Alexa. Alexa. <laughs> That's for all our listeners. That's for all our listeners. Personalized directions from you know who, you know, as you're walking through the terminal. <laughs> I, I love the picture there where it does say, it says, hello, Liz. Thanks for being a diamond medallion. That's a bit scary. Yeah. I don't know if I like that. I, I, I think we should, we should uh, get them to put the PTUK logo up on there. You know, just right. Um, yeah. Yeah. For a cool, like $7 million. Yeah, yeah. Oh, lovely. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure a certain someone who's good at tech stuff could hack their system. Mm. That's not a word I want mm. to hear around an airport. Thank you. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, anyway. I think, <laughs> well, I think this is funny because when I, when I did uh, work for an airline and I, and I wore the uniform, you know, the costume uh, going through airports, that's, that's probably the thing that I did the most is answer people's questions as to where the bathrooms are, where baggage claim is, where gate E14 is. And most of the time, like it wasn't my home airport. I was Atlanta based at the time. So I'd be in like Detroit or Pittsburgh and somebody comes up to me just because I had a badge and a uniform and they'd be like, hey, where is gate A21? And (laughs) all you do is say, well, uh, I would look up at the signs there if I were you and probably follow those because I'm not from here either. (laughs) So nice to have a little assist from some technology. Way to go, Delta. Absolutely. Indeed, oh, I remember that for next time I get stuck. <laughs> uh, next story, next next story has come to us from BBC.com, and uh, oh, this is great. This is a headline: is British Belgian pilot, British Belgian pilot, uh, who's only seventeen, becomes the youngest. To oh fly no! The world solo. We've got another one. They're going to get. Honestly, we're going to get to the stage where there'll be a three-year-old toddler oh flying, a, <laughs> flying a 150, you know. Um, this uh, teenage pilot has become the youngest person to fly solo around the world in a small aircraft. Mark, oh, sorry, Mac Rutherford, who's 17 and 64 days, that's the important part, landed at Sofia in Bulgaria after a five-month journey. Rutherford's route spanned 52 countries across five continents on a specially prepared ultralight shark aircraft uh, with cruising speeds reaching 300 kilometers per hour according to his website his elder sister zara is the youngest woman to fly solo around the world and she completed her own journey in january this year and disclosed that she had given him advice on the route as she traveled to sofia to meet mac she returned or as he returned to the starting point of his trip the previous record holder for flying solo was british pilot travis ludlow i think we've had travis on the show didn't we we did yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah we did who was uh, 18 and 150 days old when he completed his journey he's just start, he's starting year. a new chapter actually hasn't he yes, he's just gone off he to has. i think i saw on his socials that he's gone off to to uni himself, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he sold all his gear. He was selling all his, selling all his uh, flight gear, actually, online. But um, 17 years old, I mean, that is, wow. um, you know, the, the question is, will, he, will, will this young British-Belgian pilot who's 17, will he now go from, from this and, and go for the whole hog and go for his, you know, commercial licence? And I would imagine so. Yeah. I would imagine so. I think I think you'd have to. And that he, as I say, it's a very, I'm trying to see how it, uh, I was trying to get it to, to work, but there's a very, very cool little, um, 
There's a cool, I can't get him to work on my machine for some reason, but you, you were able to track the route of his flight and uh, it's not uh, it's not working on my computer for some reason, but uh, which is a real shame. But uh, yeah, if you take yourself to maxsolo.com forward slash journey, you can see uh, what I was referring to there. It's, it's a, it was a really cool little tracker that just sort of shows the route that, that he took um, flying around the world. Uh, <laughs> Please fly my toddler to Greenland. Right, okay, very mm. good. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, somebody's having next? a tough afternoon. Yeah. But Ten years' time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pop, Poppy, do you want to do you want to go and fly a plane? <sighs> he's talking to his cat. I can't believe he's actually. No, to his well, cat. no, that would be a world record, wouldn't it? The it first would. It cat would absolutely to ever to fly, fly solo. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's it for the commercial news. As we've got our guest Ben on the show this week, and obviously Ben has had a lot happen in his life uh, to do with aviation since we last had him on the show. 10 million episodes ago uh, but <laughs> something like but, that yeah but yeah so so ben welcome uh, on again to the show thanks for joining us this evening and stuff it's great to have you back on so ben what what has changed significantly since you were last um, with us on the show uh so i'm probably about fifty thousand uh, pounds <laughs> okay that's that's uh, no, the no, given no. yeah no I, I don't like to go on about the money side too much because that's that's what don't overrides off. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what overrides the conversation all the time so yeah. it gets to the point where it should be about you know the enjoyment rather than the money obviously it's an important part but uh yeah so i think it was four years ago i was here um i just got my ppl i think yes, and yeah. uh over the last six months i guess it's been um i've been training up in scotland and in Ireland to get the commercial pilot's license. So um, started off with the multi-engine um, rating on the DA-42 and then the multi-engine instrument rating. Um, so you're flying up in the airways and things like that doing instrument approaches. And then to finish off, which feels a bit backwards um, for me it did and for other people to then go into a single engine and um, back into the Piper Arrow um, to do the CPL, commercial pilot's license, and that completes your training for that. Wow! Wow! And then an upset recovery course, which is three hours, getting chucked around in an extra <laughs> um, to learn how to to recover from upsets in the air, and then uh, to finish off a forty-hour uh, course um, in the seven three seven simulator uh, to do wow. multi-crew and jet orientation, and then that gets you your what's known as a frozen ATPL. So you've got everything that you need to apply for the airlines. So uh, wow. Yeah. So, so you you could essentially now you've done this, Ben. You you can now approach, um, you know, approach people like Ryanair or Jet Two, and and potentially, uh, you know, put yourself forward. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I've I've, I've applied for a few uh, roles already um, with a few smaller operators. Jet Two do a really good scheme. I think. Um, I think he might be coming on here again soon, Jake. Um, yeah, Jake. I've got Jake Jet coming 2. on. Yeah. Yeah, Jake. He's fantastic. He he was started at a similar time to me at Beckles. Yeah. Um, flying school and he, he flies for Jet 2 now and followed a similar path but um, yeah he can apply for Jet 2 do a great apprenticeship scheme which uh, Jake followed um, Ryanair um, obviously got all the other operators as well Loganair a really good recruiter of low hour pilots as well uh, Eastern and yeah lots of different opportunities especially at the moment it's been quite tough over the last couple of years so mm. um, we've come into a time now where it's actually quite nice to come out of flight train and have the options to, to go ahead and, and, and get a get so, first job so what was the uh, so what is the type rating that you've now got 
So I haven't got a type rating yet. Yep. So I did 40 hours on the 737 sim. Yep. And that gets you your uh, Moldy crew. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So it's how, how to cooperate with other crew because obviously you've done everything on your own. Everything's your decision. Independent. And now yeah, suddenly okay. you've got yeah. to cooperate with uh, someone you've probably never met before. Right. Which is uh, quite a challenge, <laughs> you know. And I suppose it makes sure you're all singing from the same song sheet. Is it? Yeah, that's it. You've got to have this um, shared mental model was the yeah. posh word they call it. So yeah. um, it's quite important, but it's good fun. And, uh, you know, if you get on well with the other guy, then it yeah. really helps. You know, you, you make some better decisions based on having two minds rather than one. So. Indeed. So uh, just remind me, sort of obviously, so how the journey started, obviously, because it was a long time ago since yeah. you were on, because you, you very kindly uh, sent me over some pictures to yeah. to include. So just talk me through the, uh, <laughs> the the journey so far. Yeah, you can flip through those. It starts a yeah. little bit cheesy, actually, um, but I thought for the benefit <laughs> of the viewers, it'd be quite good just to skip through um, some pictures to, to show the journey and what it's like for anyone wanting to get into aviation. I think the, the path that gets talked a lot about is the the journey where it costs £100,000 and yeah. you've got to have rich parents and you've got to yeah. have um, remortgage your house and things like that. And yeah. throughout the train, I've met people that have had that and um, I take nothing away from them. They've worked very hard, but obviously um, the funding side is important. And yeah. so um, it'd be good to you know show that it's possible without that. Um, so now I, I, I feel I recognise this particular aircraft. Is this... Yeah. So you know where that is? I want to say Ducksford. Yep, yep, that's, that's com- it. That's the Concorde, isn't it? It is the Concorde, yeah. And do you know the only reason I recognise it? Not for the reasons I probably should being on this show, but it's the beautiful cable management that my safe, yeah. myself and Nev admire constantly. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say the, the beautiful chap standing. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all about yeah. the cable management. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was at Ducksford. Is it? And uh, so, I mean, is that where, had you already got the bug by that point? Is that why yeah. you were at Ducksford? Or? Yeah, I've, I included that because I thought, you know, it's, it's always nice to um, show where the, yeah. the passion started from. From that, she compared uh, flying, you know, the the pilot journey to radio, which is uh, quite important for you two yeah, guys, yeah. obviously. And a, a lot of the guys that get into radio start off in hospital radio, yep. and they work their way up. You know, Greg James, Scott Mills, all these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, and he did student radio at the UEA and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's a very similar path, and they've had the passion for a very long time. So it's the same with aviation for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and that was me, probably on there, I was six or seven. Yeah. And that's my uncle actually, who was in the Navy Royal navy as a harrier on the engineer and he used to take me uh he he was the one that took that photo and took me to duxford uh and i think that's probably where i got most interest from i actually used to i used to really like trains and and lorries and buses and things like that that? so uh, i've gone away (laughs) from that that now um so (laughs) it's gone a lot more into aviation um particularly from that point so uh, that's where it started so to start off the journey um i a terrible photo i don't know (laughs) That's, that's all you I gave them to me, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, yeah, just the, the mirror yeah. and everything. So just to, just but, describe it to us, obviously, because uh, yeah. the majority of people are list- uh, who are listening uh, to this. So this is a is it, uh, is it a cadet uniform? Yeah, so it's from the Air Cadets. So if anyone um, has pe- someone they know that wants to get into aviation, it's a great way to start. You can join from when you're eighteen, uh, thirteen, I believe, um, and you get. Um, a, a number of opportunities flying obviously a main one I think yep. that's reduced quite a lot now but you still that's where I got yeah. my first flight but just the skills that you develop and the confidence through doing uh, camps away from home for yep. the first time shooting teamwork built you know you know snooping through a forest at 
10 o'clock at night in the dark <laughs> trying to find someone else. As you do. Yeah. As you do. Um, and yes, yeah, it's, it's a great way to get started. So I started off in the cadets, I think when I was about 13, 14, and I stayed there for a number of years. I actually left, um, which you'll see on the next slide, I actually left for that uh, to start gliding. I didn't have time to do see, that. that. Gliding is a, a place where a lot of people start, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to get started, obviously, um, unless you go on to do um, what's known as your badges, uh, bronze and silver badges which is uh, cross country flying you can't actually count the hours towards your commercial license oh, okay. so it's, it's really good to build your stick and rudder skills that right. um, I think are really fundamental to being a good pilot at the start and understanding how to fly well um, so gliding really does help that and uh, decision making skills as well mm. um, so that's actually my mum on the other um, slide there in the glider he used to take me uh, thank you very much mum if you ever listen uh, to, to the gliding site and uh, that's it's over near uh, Stone Market so it's a fair trek so it's about an hour from where I live for, for people that aren't local and that's uh, where I started so I then actually did my first flight in a microlight over at Beckles, which you might recognise there, and that was when I was... <laughs> Carlos is nodding. <laughs> 16 years old. So actually back to front the slides, if you go to the next slide, when I was gliding, I actually applied to a scholarship, and that's the me that was the message oh. that I got. Oh, it's all gone mad. Sorry, oh, yeah. carry on. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you go back to the previous slide, if yeah. you can. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I applied for a gliding scholarship and was uh, unsuccessful and that was when I was uh, gliding there so that wasn't great news so that was a shame so I thought right what can I do because I sort of felt sorry for myself for a few days and thought right what can I do to um, push forward so obviously on the I feel like uh, was it Chris Whitty yeah, 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 yeah next slide please next slide please, next yes, slide, please. Um, I've always wanted to do this so yes. I'm very yeah. excited I'm rubbing my hands now <laughs> <laughs> yes so yeah was, uh, I got the email to say that I was unsuccessful so and then uh, you can actually go back a slide to yeah. the microlight I thought right what can I do to, to get into aviation now I need to do it on my own um, and so what I did is I started uh, in the microlight school and at the time I was working at a local pub which you can go to on the next slide please yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was working at a local seaside pub there you can see and uh, I used to get paid £3.50 an hour oh steady when I started <laughs> wow so I was uh, making a lot of money yeah but obviously uh, I think back then flying lessons were I don't know about £150 um, per hour so it would right. take me what 10 about 40 what's that about 50 hours 50 hours to earn one yeah, flight yeah about 50 hours to <laughs> okay. do one flight so yeah it'd probably take me a month or two to get one yeah. flight but I kept doing that for a year or two um, I think it was just over a year and uh, sadly Beckles Airport closed for training so I was hit with a bit of a brick wall I yeah, couldn't yes, drive did. I didn't have much money because uh, I hadn't given, getting paid too much um, yeah. and then uh, I had nowhere to train but fear not yeah. I was very lucky and applied for a PPL scholarship this time instead of the gliding one yeah. and if you go to the next slide I was very lucky to receive a scholarship from the Honourable Company of Air Pilots oh, cool. um, along with eight others and that allowed me to get the funding to complete a Yay. PPL which was uh, very lucky so yeah I was quite 
quite. So where, where did you do your training from? So so obviously not at Beckles, but so where did you go after that? Yeah, so there's a place called Crowfield, which is near Wadersham Air Base, um, right near Milton Hall as well. Um, and is that my, part of the scheme? Is that the what the? Uh, so you choose where you want to fly, and okay. they'll do their um, checks on the airfield to make sure that it's not it's too expensive and okay. suitable for your training. And uh, luckily for me, I was able to go there and complete it in the Robin uh, 200 aircraft, which is very nice. Um, but yeah, I think at that point it was quite difficult because you're, you're faced, you think you apply for this scholarship, yeah, you yeah. give it your everything and then you don't get it. Yeah. And I thought, right, we'll give it our best shot. I, I started doing quite a few different bits and bobs yeah. uh, in that year. I started work and I actually started writing a book um, to try and help other people get into aviation. Yeah. And I just tried to show the selection panel that, you know, I've had this bug for a very, very long yeah, time. Yeah. I want to make it happen. And uh, those bits within that not year period. Not just a whim, essentially. Yeah, not yeah, just yeah. a whim. Yeah, I just wanted to make show them that, you know, this isn't a, a one, and I'm actually on. Uh, very lucky to be on the selection panel for the scholarship from the Umbrella oh, Company cool. Air Pilots. So each year I get to help review the applications. Nice. Um, one thing that does stick out to you is when you see someone that's applied for the second year running, you think, oh yeah, this guy, this guy uh, really wants it. So it does, it does tick that box. So yeah. it's always worth reapplying if you see that um, because it makes a big difference. Now I know I know Armando's got uh, quite a few questions to ask, but we've got we'll take one from the chat room, um, actually Ben. Uh, yep. Before we move on, this one I'll pop up on the screen there. This one's from the Air Stig, and he's asking, uh, "Did you seek out any mentors, and did you find the support you needed?" Uh, yeah, it's a really good question actually. So there was a uh, a few people in my village, um, one of which was a group captain in the RAF um, at Bentwaters. Um, which uh, some of you may know, an ex-American uh, Air Force base, and uh, he he gave me some guidance on um, how I could uh, sell myself uh, effectively for the scholarship and what type of things to do. I think the biggest thing, um, aside from that, and also a very kind chap called James, who who um, used to run quite a few businesses he sort of helped me with my cv and things like that but the the biggest thing about getting into aviation is to see people that had also followed this modular route in the sense that you know you're funding it yourself you're working um and, and paying for yourself and you know my story's not unique there's a lot of people that um do the same path that i've followed um but the it's not it doesn't seem to reach the press as much people aren't aware that you can do it as much as the you know 100 i think there's a program the easy jet um series that you yeah. might have seen they're like oh yeah you have to do 100 grand bank of mum and dad and things <laughs> and there there are other routes to it so yeah, yeah. i think the the biggest thing for me mm. is seeing things like this now and uh, youtube videos and blogs from other people that had followed the modular path to say look you know if you don't have rich parents or if you um unable to fund it right now through remortgaging the house or something like that you can still do it so no i think that was the biggest thing uh the advice online now particularly um through covid and uh sorry you don't like that word but through, no, no, we're right with covid <laughs> sorry, it's through, through, through recent years it's, where things it's have got brexit that's the oh, word yeah. we don't like through brexit <laughs> as well um but the the advice online is fantastic but in terms of mentors there's some fantastic youtubers out there that that um give some great support plain old ben um he's a great chat to watch and there's others as well if you look on there um so yeah that's probably the best but yeah um in summary there's some great people in the village that have helped me um my family of course and then also people that are in aviation right now um you can find online as well so there's a Armando, over to you hey what a 
What a great journey. And it is nice to hear because we do talk a lot about on the show how the financials are such a barrier. Um, and I, so there's, I do have a, a few questions. So the, the Air Cadets, we, we've just interviewed so many people that have had these amazing aviation careers that got their starts in the Air Cadets. What were some of the lessons that you learned in the Air Cadets? How did it prepare you um, for your current your current chapter? Um, and what lifelong lessons do you think that you'll always keep from the Air Cadets? I think the the biggest thing that stood out to me at the start was having the level of confidence um, to make your own decisions um, was something that you've never really done before at 13, 14. And I think the cadets put you in the situations where you have to make decisions. And obviously for um, being in command of an aircraft, particularly light aircraft, where you're the only pilot and particularly going into corporate aviation where you might be uh, the only pilot there and there's a captain, you have to make these decisions and you have to make them fairly quickly in certain situations. And so I think having that early on, um, being faced with situations and they're they're realistic you know the the teachers and the cadets are there they've got military experience and this is proper stuff it's not willy you know if you get upset and you you you, they just leave you to it you got to get on with it so I think just having that hard sort of start where everything's been wrapped in cotton wool before that and then suddenly you're put there where (laughs) you can't you can't run away hello real world yeah exactly 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 that and that that hit me quite hard actually on some of the camps it's like wow you know this is serious and you're fairly young at the at the time so I think that that's a, a great start I think the other thing as well is the teamwork skills um, because again, you might have played football as part of a team, but um, and done other sports. Um, soccer, sorry, I wonder. Yeah, soccer, <laughs> soccer, <laughs> soccer. Um, <laughs> you might have done things like that, um, and, and netball and things like that. Um, but obviously, within that, they're trying to teach you how to be good at the particular sport and not actually the teamwork elements. Yeah. And so a big part of aviation is crew resource management, CRM. Mm-hmm. And that's where the teamwork skills really come into it. And the, in the cadets, they're teaching you how to work as a team. Yeah. Um, and rather than the end goal, because if you can work as a team, well, then um, naturally you'll get to whatever you're trying to work towards better. So you've got the teamwork skills, you've got the confidence. And then the last one I'd say is just a bit of self-discipline with the uniform and things like that, you know, um, being able to iron well and present mm-hmm. yourself well and you get marked on that each time you go. So there, there's yeah. so many other skills that I haven't even touched on there, but I think those three things stuck out to me. Um, what, so... Studio. What's kind of funny is uh, John Jester, who is in the chat room, uh, was one of my air cadet mentors when I was an air cadet or civil air patrol here in the States. And and that did continue on. Even when I was an airline pilot, I would still press my uniforms. I would present the most professional image and use shirt stays, things like that. Uh, always ironing, fresh shirt b- before each day. Um, so those skills do stay with you. Uh, now, you talked about all all your courses that you went through, the instrument, the commercial, the MCC, the upset recovery, um, which one of those courses was your favorite and which one was the most challenging? Um, so I've got a few pictures which Matt can uh, run through, which sort of shows that, um, yeah, so you can start on that. Next slide, please. Okay. Um, but I think... <laughs> Great. I, <laughs> I think the various courses all taught you different things. I think that 
I think that's the aim of them really. The instrument rating I was worried about most because it's a big jump up. So if you go to a few slides, times so that's night rating. Um, so that wasn't too bad. It's actually how, how did that compare, by the way? I mean, you know, going from like flying, like day flying and stuff, to yeah. to then doing like your first night flights. I mean, that must yeah. have been quite challenging. Yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that you actually think would be like that. But I don't know if Armando agrees with me, but it's actually not that much different apart from. Um, because your reference points, your reference points when you're landing, things like that, are still very, using the same method, but you're using the lights instead. Um, there's a few variations of it, but yeah, it's easy as well. You can see other aircrafts, <laughs> especially around here where you haven't got flight following, um, <laughs> where you've got to watch out for your own uh, collision avoidance. Um, that helps. But yeah, I, I didn't find it too much of a jump, to be honest. I think it was all fairly natural. Um, you know, navigation things are a little bit more tricky because there's less features that you can distinguish between. Right. Um, but actually, taking off and landing things like that, you, you're using the same skills that you've used throughout your training. So that wasn't too bad. And I suppose the flight, flight, especially in these these aircraft, in particular, are, are much lower. Obviously, you're not sort of in cloud base or anything. No. Particularly. No. So it's uh, VFR only um, at night. Um, at that stage with your night rating um, you're using the instruments a little bit but most of it's looking outside so you're using the visual references um, and there's a number of things that you practice as part of the night rating like if you have an electrical failure mm. um, but you've got your head torch with the, the lights so you can Gosh. see and things okay, like so that you can so see your instruments yeah, yeah, like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but um, yeah I was really surprised I was really surprised and uh, my instructor was the instructor that I actually started flying without a Beckles Stuart O'Neill um, who you uh, know, so, just throwing yeah, well, you all know Stuart, yeah, because uh, you eat at his restaurant, don't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Stuart, he he uh, took me through the night rating course, so it was really good. Um, but back to the original question, yeah, I think the various courses all taught you different things. I think the instrument rating was the biggest jump up because at that stage you've just got your PPL um, and you've not really been exposed to just how quick things come at you especially when you're flying a faster aircraft the robin that i'd fly before cruise at about 70 maybe 70 to 80 knots at times um whereas the da42 you can be up to 150 knots so you double the speed so you've got to think uh, twice as quick and then you've also got to be ahead of the aircraft you're flying single crew you're looking at the approach plates you're looking at all the minimas uh, you're liaison with air traffic control that might put you in a hold that you're not expecting and things like that so things come at you thick and fast so i think that transition um was probably what makes you closer to a professional pilot being able to deal with just the volume and the pace of the operation um and the, yeah the instrument rating was uh, you have to be precise as well you know on your instrument rating test i think it's stricter in the uk i, I might be wrong but you're only allowed to go half uh, half a dot on the glide slope out or half a dot on the localizer as well i think it's a little bit more a bit less one i wonder may, may know the answer yeah, to that because yeah. you've flown both yeah, here I and it, i think i think a, a lot of the standards are more strict over there yeah. in yes uh, and uk yeah so it, it varies between country but even so you know to to do that after um, a fairly short training course is quite demanding particularly when you're flying into international airports so i did my ir test into glasgow 
um, oh, wow. and on that you've got British Airways coming up your yeah. chuff uh, so you've got, to, <laughs> yeah. you've got to keep your speed up and uh, yeah. you've got easy jets waiting to go with obviously 150 passengers sat there waiting for you to do your stuff so and then obviously once you've done your approach the examiner fails an engine on you so you've got a single engine you've got to work out your route back so yeah there's a lot coming that you're thick and fast but it's really really surprising how the 50 at 55 hour course at the start you think right how the hell am I going to do this and by the end of it you you become really quite Mm. proficient with it so and that just goes to show how good the training is in aviation which is probably one of the best industries in the world for training people um, I'd say wow yeah and and it's gonna it's gonna stay uh, largely the same the airplanes will get bigger the bigger they are, the easier they are to fly, but the more complicated their systems are. But all of your check rides from here on out um, will kind of be about the same. It'll be, you know, you comp- you will get one failure and then that compounds to a second failure. And you, next thing you know, you end up uh, flying a single engine, hand-flown ILS approach or something like that. But there's not, I mean, there, you've already done a, a huge bulk of it. There's not a lot that they can really start throwing at you yeah. uh, it just the speeds are a little bit different the weights are, are a little bit different but there is one question in the chat room which is w- were there any particular areas that you sort of got hung up on or kind of you found more difficult than you were expecting because you know failures is part of this aviation business right yeah i think i'll probably uh, i'll be quite honest um fairly early on in the um is the multi-engine training uh, I was struggling quite a lot with the rudder control it was actually quite a different system on the DA42 so just just trying to get used to that was quite a challenge and I think what compounded that is my course mate he was uh, finding it a lot easier um, so you've got that impact um, and you, you see it in F1 a lot where one teammate's doing a lot before and it really does affect um, another uh, part of your training, you know, I think. I mean, you mentioned that Richard Adams has, Adams has got a question saying, "Did you get yeah. stuck on any elements uh, for a brief period, e.g., yeah. landings or anything?" Yeah, so just rudder control in the DA forty two. I managed to get uh, on in the hang of it fairly quickly after the multi engine. Uh, piston rating which was for the instrument rating and then you know you'll have a few flights where you're with your course mate and he he does a few things wrong and you, you manage to do it right and that boosts your confidence so having a training partner does help but obviously when when you're struggling a bit more at certain things it, it hurts you know you, you see yourself struggling but i think yeah i think rudder control on the multi-engine aircraft was the biggest thing initially I think then um, it was just the pace of it, really, um, just getting ahead of the aircraft. Uh, because when you're flying IFR, you've got your hood on, so you can't look outside. You're only looking at the instruments, um, and it gets quite tiring when you're looking at the instruments for over two hours. You know, you're constantly yeah. doing what's known as a selective radial scan, where you're checking your your attitude, your speed, your altitude. Uh, you obviously you've got your fuel flow as well yeah. so you need to make sure that your fuel's okay your liaison with air traffic control so there's a lot going on um, and as part of your instrument rating it's probably some of the most demanding flying that you'll do in that nature because you are single crew and you're doing the procedures back to back indeed so then uh, Dirk's asking a question besides being interested in aviation do you think it needs special talents to follow the path that you did or is it like uh, almost anyone could do it could I do it 
Yeah, I think you could. I think that <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not just me saying that. I yeah. think that there's a big thing, particularly. I disagree. I'm just putting that out there. But yeah, anyway. no, 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 no. I think um, it's one of those things where you're in school. You know, oh, to be a pilot, you've yeah. got to be this maths genius. But I mean, I, rem- I remember you being obsessed because obviously our paths crossed yeah, yeah, in, yeah. My, in my previous life, and I I think we'd gone down to I want to say Guildford or somewhere. Yeah, like that, yeah, it's down there. in Surrey. That's right. And um, and uh, Chris, who was the per- who was the the guy who was in charge there at the time uh, sort of uh, introduced you to me because he knew that I did this. Yeah. And the conversation that we had over dinner was uh, mind-blowing, to, to say the least. Uh, and it was... Uh, I mean, you used to... You literally do flights just because you... Not even flying. I mean, you just... You'd be Even as a passenger, you got as much enjoyment just being in the air and and that's the one thing that I I don't have that you know I I, I go to great lengths to not get into an aircraft Um, I I mean do you do you think that helps there's got to be a there's so much work involved in learning how to fly and to do do what you do and to do what Armando is now sort of like literally living uh, the dream really although obviously Armando's journey sort of started through military I mean did that ever pop into your head as an option yeah I think it was uh, one of those that people tell you to follow a lot because it's they give you the free training they give you very good training um and also it's cool to be a top gun ace isn't it yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's one of those things uh, that people always point out to you but it wasn't an option for me because i had asthma before so oh, I see. and that's another thing there's lots of uh, medical things that you might have that might you might think oh i can't get into aviation or something like that but if you go for your uh, medical class one medical um there'll be a number of tests that they can do and they'll refer you to specialists that are able to identify um, certain things that you can get around and you can campaign against it. So colour blindness yeah. is something in America, in Australia that you can, or New Zealand that you can fly with, but you can't fly in any other place in the world. Um, and they pioneered that as because they've shown that it doesn't affect your ability in certain situations. Um, there's also a chap that flies for Logan Air, which was the first pilot to fly with HIV as well. So there's all these different wow. things that you barriers can... Barriers being broken, literally. Yeah, yeah. barriers being broken um, that you can get into. But also educational. I think if you've got the passion to do it, there's a lot of people that are known, and there's some pictures there that you might want to show, actually, of my time doing the 14 ATPL exams. And there's a number of people, which is your air transport pilot license exams, of which you need to do 14 and I included oh, the, the whiz wheel. Yeah, you got the whiz wheel. <laughs> Yay, the, the whiz wheel. And the sunset with my iPad there. Yeah. Just to try and make that's, it look a bit more glamorous. Make it look a little more, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But essentially, you're just studying charts. That's yeah, so it was 14 exams you had to do, and that took uh, a year and a half, and you're obviously doing full-time work at the same time, so you're, yeah. you're getting up at 6, 7, going to work for the day, getting back at, I don't know, 5 or 6, having tea, and then studying up until 11, and just doing that every day for a year Indeed. and a half. But if you've got the, you know, it never fits and I've actually got a friend doing it at the moment and he said strangely I kind of enjoy it because it feels like I'm taking the next step so the answer to the question is is that there was people at the course that really didn't do well in their exams at school and uh, they've gone on to be fantastic pilots Um, so don't let educational barriers stop you as Mm. such even if 
I, I don't even think having GCSEs and things are a requirement for certain things. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't touched the whiz wear seats. No, I have is not the question, Richard. No, 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 no. So let, let's just work through a few more. I, I know there's only there's just a few pictures left yeah. in, in, got, yeah, a few. in, in the in the thing. So just just talk us through the the, the story yeah. of here. What's this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was actually camping at Cromer, um, which oh, is lovely. a lovely place on the Norfolk coast here in uh, East Anglia, and uh, that was as part of the hour building. So that's another great thing if you haven't got the money to go to an integrated school and you're funding it yourself um, as I did through the modular approach so you, you know you're working full-time and then you're using your money to pay for each stage that's what I did there and uh, you get a few additional benefits from that so you're hiring out your own plane so you can sort of make your own plan so wow, as part okay. of that um, with a few guys from the local club we decided to go camping where we fly in get your get your tent out the back of the aircraft and, and away you go which yeah. I guess uh, probably Armando in America he's, done, he's done quite a lot of yeah, it yeah, absolutely yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so th- this we'll just take a quick look at this one now this looks a little bit more sexy yeah, uh, yeah so absolutely. tell me what this is <laughs> so that's a DA42 it's actually Diamond. my friend in there Will who, uh, who, who completed the train at the same time I couldn't find the picture and I knew he wouldn't get me for copyright <laughs> so that's why he got good. Yeah, um, but that's the DA42 so that's what you do instrument rating on the multi-engine training right it's okay quite a, uh, it's quite a modern aircraft yeah some people say so is that a glass cockpit right? it is a glass yeah, cockpit okay. yeah and it's got a full fadex system which means that it manages your fuel flow and uh, mixture control and things like that so you've got less levers and your RPM and things like that so in traditional aircraft like that you'd have your prop levers and your mixture levers um, uh, which give you a bit more control some would argue whereas in that it controls everything but the downside is if the um, ECU batteries fail yes um, you've only got half an hour until the engines just quit on you so right okay that's yeah, not I ideal that. that's not ideal <laughs> nope. uh, now the picture that you've got behind you just tell me tell me what the so describe yeah. this to me well that's it <laughs> yeah yeah so that's uh, that's going over Oban so I did my training up in Scotland um, you know flying into airports like Aberdeen and uh, Glasgow uh, I was based out of Perth airport so nice that was a fantastic experience you know the the landscape was great and the the, the weather and the terrain gives you a really good uh, opportunity to refine your skills it is diesel yeah i think there's some in america that are actually lycoming engines and they've got the extra levers but it's uh, it's quite rare to see those but they're diesel so you can use ja1 which is obviously a lot cheaper um but that was up over oban I keep using the wrong hand. Yeah, uh, that was up in uh, Oban, so that was going over there, and that was as part of the training. It was a two-hour flight. We flew from Perth up to Aberdeen, and then across to Inverness, then down the Great Glen or whatever they call it, um, down Loch Ness, and then down to uh, Perth again. So that's a lovely flight. So we're just uh, so the, the final thing we'll we'll end on with with this is before we sort of ask what's next. Oh yeah. Uh, now there's a little video here that you also <laughs> included, which I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna run as well. So just talk us through this. This is what yeah. what is this flight here? Yeah. So this is the upset recovery training. It's nowhere near as exciting as some uh, people do aerobatics, but it gives you an idea of some of the things that you do. Um, basically, the course teaches you if you find yourself in the unusual attitude. That I think the definition is outside of what. There oh, you go. oh dear! I feel oh no, <laughs> oh no! Yeah. I couldn't do. I, I love the registration of the uh, the aircraft. Golf yeah. Sierra Papa uniform november <laughs> he's fun yeah no it's a good one that <laughs> they thought about that hard i think yeah, yeah. Uh, but the yeah the the idea of that train is is that if you find the aircraft outside of what you want it it to do so yeah. if you want it to go into a climb that's in the descent or if it's in a stall or something like that then how do you recover from that situation and the biggest uh 
role of that becoming uh, mandatory training was Air France 447 and that was when they obviously stalled over the Atlantic into the sea um, wow. which is very sad um, but there's been a lot of learnings from that instant to instant to carry forward into train for us guys you know yeah. to not allow ourselves to get into that situation so, so we'll move on to how you sort of how the journey sort of like has progressed so far so now, the, now this I, I remember seeing very very recently on your social yeah. media yeah so that that's the end um, and I think it's hard because you look at them oh yeah you're at the end which is good yeah. but for me I think the biggest part what I would say is throughout your flight training you just really need to enjoy the journey because I'm yeah. like I'm here now and I think oh well, cool yeah, done, <laughs> what next I've done that what yeah, next yeah, yeah. yeah so and it's not to say that you don't you, you take it for granted because you absolutely don't but it's more the fact that you know I always thought oh I just want to get to I just want to get the yeah. license but you look back and some of the uh, times when you're doing your flight yeah. training are the, the best moments of your life. So I look back for that fond memory. So that was when I passed the commercial pilot's licence yeah. test, which was really good. It was quite an eventful test, but I won't go into that now. It's okay. one for the, for the restaurant after. <laughs> okay, right, fair enough. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yes. Never say yeah. anything that you well, don't want the ATSB to hear. Well, no, it's not that. <laughs> Essentially, I needed to land at an airfield which was uh, hosting the uh, British Open for the Gulf. Uh, which meant they had wow. about, uh, 80 business jet movements oh in, uh, which meant that... <laughs> Finding a slot rather challenging then. Yeah, yeah so yeah, my yeah. final approach yeah. uh, after being asked to maintain maximum speed was interesting, but we made it. Um, <laughs> so that's good fun. But yeah, that last picture you had up on yep. the screen, that was the 737 sim, so that's where you do your multi-crew training. So that's, wow. Was that a full sim or was it one of the fixed base ones? Yeah, so it's yeah. fixed base, but it was, uh, they can yeah. actually do part They're of the incredibly training on it. Re- realistic, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Almost. Uh, same, swe- same as one we had for the 200. It was, yeah, yeah. so the yeah. 200 and stuff. And the, the one thing I remember from that, although I didn't, because I, I didn't actually have a go of the controls and stuff, because I, I, I have no interest in it whatsoever. But even though I'm just watching the screens, Carlos is laughing, even though I was watching the screens, I still felt my knees go as you started yeah. to pull it. It's yeah. absolutely crazy. Yeah. It's amazing what the mind can do to trick you into doing it because it, it you know it was a fixed base there was no there was no moving parts it just like brrr, honestly it's amazing so that's yeah. so that's where you're at at the moment isn't it so you've done 40 hours in the city. yeah so 40 hours in that so now the next stage is um i've got everything that i need to apply for my first role as a commercial pilot which is um the hardest part you know to get your first job once you've got experience it's a lot easier um but it's exciting you know as i said before i think that a lot of people always and it's the same if you're if you're trying to become a a top basketball player or, or <laughs> um, the best athlete or whatever you know whatever it is or get into radio you know once you've made it onto yeah. say radio one whoa is, uh, i'm too old for that dear yeah. sorry i was gonna say, well, never say never <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was going to mention. They're now getting rid of all the people yeah. who, who are my age. I'll, I'll mention Simon Mayer instead. Then yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> he actually yeah. lives in the village, so it's uh, he does. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Him and Joe Wiley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So his journey, um, I, I looked at. I used to listen to him quite a bit, but it's yeah. the same. You know, they always think, oh, you know, I'll go through hospital radio, I'll yeah, get onto yeah. Radio One. Once I get there, I'll be happy. But it's actually the the process of getting there that's the exciting part. So. Yeah, I, I do obviously want to get my first role in aviation, but I think now um, the sort of hunt to get that is yeah. the exciting bit. So. so, so what's happening now? What's 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 the, yeah. the journey for you now? Because obviously, so you, you've done that, and it's looking for the job. So, yeah. uh, you know, is that literally it now? Well, oh, sorry, made me jump. <laughs> is it? The, sorry, we're having a couple of technical problems in the studio here. Uh, yeah, is that is that is the next step? Is it now? It's like literally looking for uh, yeah. taking those hours, if you like, somewhere else to build on 
on them essentially. Yeah, so it's uh, getting your first role as a first officer um, or equivalent. You know, there's other things that you can do, such as parachute jumping and things like that. Oh, okay, yes. Um, now you're being silly. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> a lot of those single pilot operations need uh, more hours. So you know, a lot of people tend to be instructors. Um, it's just a, a more of a common path in America. Yeah. Um, but the way the industry is at the moment, you just have to remain fairly dynamic. So my plan is to apply for those roles whilst they're open. Um, if I'm unsuccessful after a period of time, I'll, I'll go and get my um, flight instructor's certificate, which I've always planned to do. I'll do it regardless, mm. but um, go and get that, get some hours instructing, and then use that um, to be more experienced to get the first role. So you've just got to sort of move with the industry. It's quite good at the moment, so to, to be low hour, um, as I am fresh out of flight school and get a job in an airline is not uncommon so we'll go for that first and then see see where see where it takes us but yeah it's a, it's a journey that always continues and you never stop learning you never stop trying to get to the next stage dare I say with uh, you know once you're in an airline once you're a captain you might want to be a training mm-hmm. captain a, a training instructor and things like that so yeah the the progression in aviation is fantastic you you never stop learning and no. uh, you never stop want to, wanting Indeed. to progress to the next stage Okay, so we're going to do. We're going to move on to the next part. Which we've got a little interview that we're going to do, uh, guys. If you've got any more questions for Ben, if you want to whiz them in uh, w- uh, as quickly as you can. Um, yes. But uh, Carlos, do you want to introduce what we're going to share with the lovely audience next? Yes. So we've got part two of the interview that uh, that I did with Patrick Elliott and Linda Walker over at the Seething Flying at the start of July. And if you remember, the couple took their long easy around the world, but in order to ship it to various parts of the world, the aircraft had to be taken apart. I talked to them about the challenges of doing this and the logistics that were involved. That must be quite a task, taking this aircraft apart into pieces to be able to ship. I mean, it, it must, you know, it must take a while. It, it, it's an interesting exercise. We were really fortunate that uh, we had got in contact with a facilitator in Taiwan who was an extremely helpful gentleman. And he arranged for us to be hosted by Air Asia Company Limited in, um, in Taiwan. And we were given an office, an engineer to help us all the facilities we obviously paid for it but all the facilities to enable us to to take the aeroplane apart i mean within maybe uh, two or three hours of landing the fuel was drained out the oil was drained out of the engine um, we'd started taking everything that we could out of it and they provided a container we organized the ship that it was going to travel on but they really helped us so it made the job a lot easier but interestingly it, this aeroplane will go in a, a standard sized container but you have to put it like this to get these bits through the door <laughs> I mean there are only what, two bolts holding the wings on three, three, three on bolts each. three bolts holding each wing on <laughs> so it's uh, relatively easy it, from that point of view you can imagine building the aeroplane the wings were on and off quite frequently and the canard comes off it's only two bolts for the canard so apart from the control linkages it's a fairly simple aeroplane and it wasn't that difficult to take apart i think we did it in about three or four days yeah and packed it up said goodbye to it and eventually we saw it arrive in vancouver and put it back together again and and then as linda said carried on Um, you must have a, a huge garage at home to be able to build this 
<laughs> no, it's a standard size garage. Single car garage. Single car garage. And we had a um, a piece of, of, of ground between the garage and the front door. So we ended up by extending that and made it L-shaped. So you had... You, you could put the nose in one direction and the wing on that way or the nose in that direction and that wing on. And, and that's how it was built. Yeah. So start from scratch. How easy, it, you know, if, if someone watching this was like, you know, I really want to build one of these, is it just a case of going to a supplier and, and buying all the various different parts that you need? Is there like an outlet to buy part? Is it an easy process? It, it's a learning process. It's a real educational project. I, I, and I think I would say anybody could build one. Um, you just have to do your research. The, the powers of the internet now make it a lot, lot easier. It's basically, it's construction is, is a big sailboard, so it's made out of a foam core covered in fiberglass and resin. And the, the mechanical bits you need, you can either make or get made for you. There are companies that still do it. And the gear legs, you know, the main fiberglass gear legs are... Uh, can be pre-made and there was a gentleman who used to blow the canopies you can get these and you know you it can be made fairly straightforwardly as long as you follow the plans from page one to page whatever it is <laughs> page a million <laughs> en- engine wise what uh, what's what's powering this we have an engine out of a, a pa28 161 it's a, a piper warrior 2 engine it's a, a lycoming 0320 d3g and we the, we made a change after our first trip to make it a fuel injected engine, so that we didn't have carburetorising issues because mm. we've been over Greenland a couple of times and, and just in case. Yes. Greenland, honestly, yes. that, the, the sights there must have been brilliant. Talking about that, out of all the countries that you've you obviously flown into a lot of countries, <gasps> I have to ask, what was probably the country that stood out as being either the most friendly or the most stunning? Um, you know scenery wise each country has its own merits it's so difficult to just pick one Um, I think Thailand was the the country that tried to reduce our the charges to the least that they could manage they came up with some amazing figure and then they said ah but you're only a certain weight um, you only fly VFR because the visual flight rules only. We can't do IFR. Oh, in that case, that, that you know, makes it down to a quarter of what they charged. But they were the only country who actually physically reduced the charges. Argentina, surprisingly, was one of the very few countries that didn't charge us at all. We never had a bill from them for, for overflying, landing. We had nothing from them at all. And you, you were quite concerned about I, going I had, to Argentina. Obviously, for of the political issues. You know, 40 years ago, mm. uh, the Falklands Islands mm. issue. And I was concerned that there would still be repercussions over mm. that for us going in. Mm. Yet, they were as friendly as any other country and in fact when we arrived in Ushuaia which is the first country, uh, first port in Argentina we went to they were apologetic because they kept us waiting for um, the, the quarantine, the quarantine uh, and, yeah. and, and 
you know, they couldn't have been nicer. And all the way through Argentina, we found people who were helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, going back to the sites, I mean, obviously Greenland is, is pretty amazing going over the ice cap. We went round Greenland the first time and over the ice cap the second time. Um, Chile is, is absolutely incredible with, with all of the fields and the... Um, the glaciers and and the the lakes um australia was was amazing because they just had rains so where all the rivers were it looked like dragon's tails so you had all the green along the side of the river banks so you had all these wonderful shapes and i mean each country definitely has something of merit and i'm guessing you get some quite good pictures from Yes, not too bad. Mm. Not too bad. Some, it's not too easy to see oak down. I can see across, but if there's something that really needs a, a good photo, Patrick just just leans the, the plane a little bit, just cants it over slightly. I'm not allowed to go too far. No, no you only can go just a little bit. So what about what, what about the the total different contrast? What country was was like the most difficult to uh, to uh, navigate? Well, or, in, in, or, or get into India was the the worst bureaucratic but oh. we we taught them so but but India was an absolute nightmare India is a nightmare yeah. Um, yeah. the people are fine but flying bureaucracy. flying actually wasn't an issue as much as I thought it might be weather wise you kind of think crossing the intertropical convergence zone kind of in when we did the first trip it was down through kind of singapore area the, the weather was a bit iffy we we did get delayed in thailand we we did a, a turn back one day because we just couldn't, couldn't get through a line of storms um mm. we were trying to get to koh samui the island of koh samui and just the weather was was dreadful but in in S- south america it wasn't half as bad as i was mm. expecting mm. and in fact we really didn't have any weather issues at all. No. Um, low, low cloud in French Guiana as we were heading towards um, Karoo where the, the space rockets go off. And um, they required us to be something like a 1,000 feet above the ground, 40 miles out from the airfields, which, <laughs> considering we were skimming the, the forest canopy, was fine, but it was raining, the weather wasn't great. But, um, yeah. 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 Really the, the weather has actually has not been an issue all the way around. But we're fair weather flyers. We, yes. we, we went to Greenland on the second trip going westbound. And we got stuck in Greenland for 17 nights. No, nobody stays in Greenland for that long <laughs> unless they're going to become a resident. And yeah. in fact, they did offer. <laughs> it, it is very expensive. Um, we were unfortunate the weather where we were at... Um, Sonderstrom, yeah. uh, Fjord, Kangalusoak. The, the weather was great. It was, you know, 25 degrees. It was clear blue skies, high-pressure area. It was just, just gorgeous. We were trying to go across the Davis... Um, uh, is it the Davis Strait? Davis, no, yeah. To Frobisher Bay really? on Baffin Island in northern Canada. And the weather there was still icy. And they had a low-pressure area. The fog was there every day. And we just we just couldn't make the crossing. And it's only a, a four-hour flight in this. But we couldn't make the crossing. And every day we'd go to the Met Office and we would say, 
are we going to go today? And they said, hmm, probably unlikely because you're either going to get icing across the water, which we didn't want to do, or you won't get to your destination. And then one morning they said, yeah, I think it might be on today. Right, we're off. Yeah. And we got there and we got there fine. All right, guys, jumping right into the military segment from the aviationist.com. This new AW-249 attack helicopter flies for the first time. Now, this is from the Italian Armed Forces. This helicopter is supposed to replace the AH-129 Mangusta currently in service with the Italian Army. The first prototype of this Leonardo AW-249 next generation, everything's next generation. At what point do we do we just become the regular generation? <laughs> so anyway, the next generation attack helicopter flew for the first time this last week at the company's plant in Verdiate. I looked that up. Uh, <laughs> the helicopter formerly designated the 249 will replace that uh, AW-129. That's been in service since the 1990s with the Italian uh, armed forces. So the helicopter flew in just its primer uh, paint and the experimental serial number uh, CSX-82069 on the fuselage, the tail boom. You can see some lines created by gray and red tape, probably some, you know, some test points. Um, ladder possibly be uh, used to attach some strain sensors to the surface to monitor the stress on the airframe during the flight. Um, as you can see, the helicopter has actually already been outfitted with the most important part, a 20 millimeter cannon sticking out the front and a top light targeting system uh, inherited from the uh, AW-129, the Mangusta. Leonardo has been working on this project since about 2017. Um, there's currently one prototype, uh, then three pre-serial production helicopters. And I think the current orders are for up to 48 helicopters. So obviously, as you can see from the pictures, looks a lot like an Apache. Very interesting. I think uh, Leonardo and some of the U.S. manufacturers work uh, fairly closely. I think uh, even the U.S. Air Force has actually looked to Leonardo to produce some of the new combat uh, search and rescue helicopters. But um, as you can imagine, these helicopters, while looking mean and rugged and having some lineage back to, I guess, you know, 1960s and 70s, styles they're loaded up with sensors they're uh, cyber enabled they're battle space enabled where they can talk to a lot of different uh, uh, family of systems mostly you know communication space so a uh, pretty cool helicopter um, it's very interesting to see the development over the last couple of years strangely enough ben was on the show in 2017 we've been tracking some of these projects <laughs> i came on the show in 2019 and uh, it's kind of weird to see some of these projects actually come to fruition, <laughs> you know, that we've just been talking about over the past couple of years. Very interesting. Um, but harking back to original platforms and a little bit of lineage, Carlos, you got the next story. Yeah, we all love a bit of uh, commercial when it mixes with military. And this one comes to us from Flight Global. And the Luftwaffe has taken the second modified A321LR under Project Pluto initiative. Uh, so Germany has received the second of two Airbus A321LRs to be operated by its Air Force, initially for troop or passenger transport missions. Bearing the military resi uh, registration 15 plus 11, 
Interesting maths. At the CFM International Leap 1A, power jets have been specially modified by Lufthansa Technique. Handed over to the Luftwaffe on the 17th of August, the twin jet will be flown by the service's executive transport wing from its base in Cologne Bonn Airport. The sister aircraft, 1510, was received by the Air Force at a ceremony at the ILA Berlin Air Show back in June. Currently configured in a 136-seat layout, the two aircraft will over the next 12 months return to Lufthansa Technique for the addition of and qualification uh, of a medevac interior. Uh, three different configurations will be available, offering the ability to transport up to six intensive care patients or 12 with less severe injuries. Preliminary work will uh, will enable installation of the medevac interior that's already been completed as part of the first phase of the project, says Te- uh, Lufthansa Technique, including configura- uh, configuration of the onboard oxygen system. Uh, the two A321LRs were ordered in July 2020 and Lufthansa Technic has modified them under the code name Project Pluto, which is in line with the company's policy of choosing the names of gods or planets for confidential work. It's nice to see a 321LR in a grey colour. I think the chat room agrees. Isn't it kind of cool? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, always, it's always cool to see, you know, these commercial airplanes in, in tactical kit. Yes, Sturman and Jonathan Warner both uh, both are enjoying that as well. So yeah, and Dirk is saying it looks really good, but it does look good. Can't be a bit of grey. I've got a bit hanging on the wall behind me here. What? <laughs> what? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I really like about this is uh, it's always fun to see commercial aircraft in, mil- in military roles. Airbus has a long history of it, right? So the A four hundred, even the the A three thirty, has proven itself. I think the U.S. again was was looking at the A three thirty. And we didn't cover it this week, but there's actually a, a story out there that they may be again looking at uh, the A330 uh, MRTT for U.S. Air Force use um, because, you know, the KC-46 isn't working out so well. So um, I did not include that in the stories this week. But what I like about this is uh, we all know that commercial aircraft are over-engineered and they're much more capable than most you know commercial operators put them to use or uh, or the public knows but the militaries you know will tend to really push the capabilities of the aircraft and then that data uh, ends up coming back into the commercial industry for you know parts performance parts life engine life engine performance you know i'll, I'll bet you like these guys are you know, the German Air Force is going to be flying them in tactical situations with night vision goggles, um, probably adding some heads up displays um, and, and you know, doing some unique missions. Uh, I think the pandemic really, really stressed the, the need for transport aircraft, specialized transport aircraft like this. Mm. Um, yeah, very cool. So I uh, can't wait to see this out on the ramp at, uh, at Riyadh or Farnborough. Indeed. Uh, that's it, I'm afraid, guys. That's where we've got to wrap things up. Unfortunately, yes, we are, we are, we are, we're gonna, we're gonna tr- uh, take our guest out, Ben, for a little yep. quick uh, treat after the show. So Indeed. we're gonna have to finish the show and wrap up now. And, uh, ben, uh, thank so you gonna, so much for joining us. Yes, we're gonna us. say a big yeah. thanks no, thank to Ben. You. It's always a pleasure, and uh, yeah. hopefully, be back. We soon. won't leave, we'll we won't leave it another five or six no. or seven years or whatever <laughs> it is next time. Well, if yeah. I come every week, I'll get free dinner every Friday. So yeah, uh, sure, that's how that works. Yeah, yeah, all right. Free food Friday. I know a radio station that does that anyway. 
<laughs> yeah, big thanks to John for all the background work this yeah. week. Thanks to Armando for joining us this week. As always, hope to see you. I won't be here next week. I'm having a, a Friday off. I'm going away for the weekend. Uh, but uh, the team will be back next Friday with you. Uh, hopefully Neville will be back as well. So thanks to everyone who's joined us in the chat room. Thanks to all the audio downloaders. Thank you very much indeed everyone who's tuned in this evening uh, take care and that is all we have time for this week uh, for episode 424 take care see you next friday take care bye bye everyone bye bye